I want to begin in chapter 15. Chapter 15 is uh, sort of a prelude, if you will, to the final seven judgments that God is going to pour out on the earth in Revelation 16, the bold judgments. But there's some significant things that are happening here in Revelation 15. And as I said earlier, as we study the book of Revelation, let's remember that primarily it is revealing to us who God is, not necessarily satisfying our curiosity about the future. It certainly tells us some aspects of God's plan for the future. But more importantly, it is the revelation of who God is. It gives us an accurate picture of God, a balanced picture of God that we may not get any in any other book like we get in the book of Revelation. And so it's very important. And, and even though I believe that you and I, if we know the Lord is our Savior, we're going to be in heaven at this point. We're not going to go through the tribulation period. Yet much of what we are talking about happening on the earth during the tribulation the truths and the principles we can apply to our life, some of them right here and now. And so I'd like to do that tonight. First of all, John says, And I saw another great and astounding sign in heaven. Seven angels who have the seven final plagues. They are final because in them God's anger is completed. And when the Bible talks about His anger, it's talking about the expression, if you will, of His righteous anger against sin. God must judge sin or else He ceases to be a holy God that the Bible reveals to us that He is. There are many today that God will never judge if there is a God. No, no. The Bible says God must judge sin. A holy God must. And, and I want to also say this aspect that when the Bible talks about His wrath being completed, let's not forget something. That though even to us as Christians, some of the things we read and we see in the book of Revelation may be hard for us to wrap our minds around as far as the judgment of God upon the earth. Let's remember something. And I'm going to give you a verse out of Peter actually to back this up. Peter writes in, in 2 Peter chapter 3 that we must remember that a thousand years are like a day with the Lord and a day is like a thousand years. And one of the aspects of that, one of the ways that that can be applied is in this way, and we don't often think about this, that God experiences as God more in one 24-hour period than any of us would if we lived to be a thousand years. So think about it from this aspect. You and I, even as Christians, sometimes cringe at the bad news and all the stuff that we see on television and, and all the stuff we read about in our newspapers. Multiply that by millions of times. Think about it. God has seen every murder that's ever been committed from the time that man was on the earth, from the time Cain killed Abel. He's seen every abuse. He's seen every rape. He's seen every evil act. He's seen every theft. He's heard every slanderous word. He's heard every hurtful word. He's consumed all of the evil of all man for thousands of years. And you think about the magnitude of that. And then you wonder that, yes, God is a very patient and merciful God, but there's going to come a time where God is going to vindicate His own character and vindicate us who have chosen to follow Him. Think about that when you read God's anger is completed. Think about how over thousands of years of human history, 
how God has allowed this to go on and then finally says, enough. (laughs) And we have effects here tonight too, along with the message. That's good. Verse 2, Then I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and his image and the number of his name, and they were standing by the sea of glass holding harps given to them by God. Notice these are are folks who have come out of the tribulation and they're already in heaven. Don't miss that. Some people are like, you know, what happens to saints when they when they die? Do they go right to heaven? Yeah, in fact, these tribulation saints are already in heaven with God and they're given harps and they're going to praise God already coming out of the tribulation and the tribulation isn't even over yet and it's only a seven-year period. But I want you to also notice that the Bible reminds us that they conquered They conquered the beast, his name, the number of his name. Now, obviously, they did this through the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think the principle here for us is if they could conquer the beast, the Antichrist and his king, if they could overcome all that was thrown at them during the tribulation, then that should encourage us and motivate us that we also can conquer and face the challenges that we are expected to face at this time in history as Christians. Is it tough to be a Christian today? Absolutely. But it's not, it's not going to be, uh, or it's going to be even tougher during the tribulation period to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if those folks during the tribulation can overcome the things that are set in front of them, then you and I can conquer today. We can conquer through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not forget what Paul said. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us in the book of in the book of Romans. He also says they were standing by the sea of glass. That word standing means they were taking their place. God had a place for them. He has a place for us. I go to prepare a place for you. Don't ever forget as a son or daughter of God, God has a place for you here. He's got a part for you to play in his church, in his body. He's also got a place for you up there throughout eternity. God always has a place at his table for his people, for his children. And that was true of the tribulation saints as well. Notice the Bible says they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. I believe the song of Moses is the one that's found in the book of Deuteronomy. It was a song that Moses wrote to commemorate God's miraculous intervention on behalf of his people and his absolute uniqueness. There's no other God at all, and our God is so unique, there's just no one like him. The song of the Lamb... I believe that this talks about Christ's submission to the Father's will. Remember when he was struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane in his humanity, and yet at the very end he says, Not my will, but thine be done. That the song of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, not the Lion from the tribe of Judah, but the Lamb of God, is talking to us about his humble submission to God's will. And certainly these folks knew what these two songs meant because God miraculously intervened on their behalf while they were in the tribulation and they had to submit to God's role for them in history. We talked about that last week. And then notice in verse 3 that God is at the center, not man. It's one of the things that Revelation reminds us of. There's not coming a time... When people are going to gather around and say, hey, look at what man's accomplished. No, there's coming a day where people will 
gather around and center themselves in God and around God and say, look at what God has done. And that's exactly what we read here. Great and astounding are your deeds, Lord God, the all-powerful. Just and true are your ways. You are king over the nations. Who will not fear you, reverence, and respect you, O Lord? And glorify your name because you alone are holy. The word holy means incomparable, matchless. That's why he says you alone are holy. There's no one like God. He is set apart from all His creation. He is the Creator. The foundation and basis for all of our worship is to maintain the Creator-Creation aspect. And God always must be separated from everything else because He created it all by His hand. All nations, John says, will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after these things I looked in the temple, the tent of the testimony was opened in heaven. And the seven angels who had the seven last plagues came out of the temple, dressed in clean, bright linen, wearing wide golden belts around their chest. The righteous character of their mission in bringing this judgment upon the earth, I think, is seen even in the way they are dressed. And that's why John is told to reveal even how they are dressed. They are dressed because this is a right mission. God is just in pouring out His judgment upon the earth at this time. In fact, I don't have time to go into it tonight, but the reference there to the tent of testimony or the tent of witness in verse 5 is a reminder that in the Holy of Holies, which is the, the tent of testimony, the tabernacle where the Holy of Holies was, that there was one main article of furniture in the Holy of Holies. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And there was something that the Ark of the Covenant said to the people of God. And and basically, I'm condensing a lot, but it said to the people of God, God, your God is faithful. And man is unfaithful. And it says that because of the three articles contained in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the three articles contained in the Ark of the Covenant? They are are the tablets, the, the Ten Commandments that Moses was given. And let let me just say for a second, that with the second tablets remember the first tablets he broke and he broke why because he saw the unfaithfulness of God's people and so it's a reminder that God was going to give his people his law his word to guide them but they were unfaithful in that first article within the ark of the covenant the the law the, the commandments of God the second article was Aaron's rod that budded. And literally, it tells us in the Bible that not only did this stick of wood get buds on it, but almonds were blossoming on on the, the rod, this dead stick. And if you remember the context of all that, it was when the children of Israel were challenging the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And yet God said, these are my leaders. This is who I want you to follow. No, they're not perfect, but they're my leaders. Follow them. And the people always constantly murmured against the leadership that God put in their life. And and God said, I'm going to send a sign to show people besides, uh, you know, letting the earth swallow up the rebellious. He said, I'm going to I'm going to show a sign and I'm going to let this dead stick flower, if you will. And so that was also contained in the Ark of the Covenant. And then there's the pot of manna, 
The pot of manna in the Ark of the Covenant was to remind the people of God that God provided their needs, their physical needs, throughout their whole 40 years of wandering. Even though they did not believe, even though they rebelled, even though their bodies would die in the wilderness because of their unbelief, God still fed them. And remember... Even though God faithfully fed them manna every day, they complained about it. It wasn't good enough. They got tired of it. And so, it, again, the, the tent of testimony always reminded the people of God, God was faithful, but the people of God were many times not faithful. And so it's a reminder that, that God is faithful in what He's doing, even though the people were not faithful. All right, I said I wasn't going to spend a lot of time on that. Let's go on to verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from God's glory and from His power. Many times when you see smoke from the glory of God, it, it speaks of, of, of a moment of insignificance and importance. And this is obviously a very sobering and somber moment that's about to take place in heaven and on the earth. And we know that because the Bible says, thus no one, God would not permit movement at this time. There was no one who could enter the temple until the seven plagues from the seven angels were completed. It's as if God stopped movement. And also, if you study this, you come to the conclusion, I think, as I did, that, that, that God <clears throat> stopped movement and caused, in a sense, silence at this moment, also to give Himself, in a sense, a moment of privacy within the Godhead. And I, I don't want you to miss that tonight, because this is a powerful, powerful picture of our God. It's as if before God finally pours out the final judgment on the earth, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have, in a sense, a moment that only they can share at this moment. And why? Well, I ask myself this question. Could I, as a mere mortal, a mere man, could I ever know the anguish of the Creator over His creation refusing to acknowledge Him? Do we... We can't really wrap our minds around that. I mean, even as parents who, who maybe have conceived children, and we know how hurtful it would be if we conceived children and they grew up and wanted nothing to do with us, that's still not creating them. And God, the Creator, created all these human beings down through history, and many of them will not even acknowledge Him. There's pain here, see? It's, it's not like God is enjoying this. Because every human being that is feeling the judgment of God is someone that we just sang about that God loves more than they will ever, ever know. I think God, in a sense, is suffering alone here. Suffering for the horror of the sin that separates man forever from himself. See, God knows that when these judgments are poured out, millions upon multiplied millions of people are going to enter into eternity and they're never going to have a relationship with Him that He wants to have with them. 
it, it just reminds us of how God really loves all of us. And yet there are many that want nothing to do with God. I don't care family member or friend. You can take, you can take the person that maybe you were closest to up to this point in your life who's turned their back on you. And we've all had somebody like that. And yet that can't even begin to compare with the hurt that God feels throughout history when those He created, those He knit together, David says, in their mother's womb, wants nothing to do with Him. Chapter 16, the judgments are poured. I'm not going to say too much about the judgments themselves. They're pretty self-explanatory and pretty sobering. John writes, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple declaring to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and then ugly and painful sores, literally dangerous viral abscesses or ulcers appeared on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Next, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a corpse and every living creature that was in the sea died. And and as you read these two, and, and if you begin to allow your mind to think about the ramifications of this, it just, it becomes overwhelming because obviously with every living creature in the sea dying, you, you can then begin to picture that on the seashores around the world will be these dead carcasses of all these marine animals. And just, just the, I mean, you just keep going with what these judgments will affect and how that will affect those who live on the earth. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they turned into blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, though, you are just the one who is and who was the holy one because you have passed these judgments. You see, because God is not willing that any should perish, he extends his patience and grace while horrible sin continues to abound on earth. But because God is also righteous, there will come a day when He must act against sin and bring judgment. And that's what the angel is reminding us of. And then he says in verse 6, Because they poured out the blood of your saints and prophets, so you have given them blood to drink. Notice, by their deeds they are reaping what they have sown. Literally, they got what they deserved. John said, and there's coming a day for that. Verse 7, then I heard the altar reply, yes, Lord God, the all-powerful, your judgments are true and just. Let's not forget, God's judgment is required by His righteousness. If He were to forever delay judgment, then He would be in violation of His own righteous nature. He would cease to be holy. He must act against sin. He's taking no pleasure in this, but he must do it. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun 
And it was permitted to scorch people with fire. Thus people were scorched by the terrible heat. Yet they blasphemed the name of God who has ruling authority over these plagues. I'm going to just read on and then I want to stop here because this is a part I do want to make a comment about. And they would not repent and give him glory. Notice, even in the face of overwhelming evidence of the reality and power of God, their hearts are so set against Him in hatred that all they can do is to continue their pattern of cursing in response to His intervention in their lives. Do you realize that one of the things John is saying here is that in the tribulation, there will be no atheists or agnostics? People will know that there's a God. And they know that the judgment that is falling on the earth is coming from the hand of God. There's no question. But will they still turn to God? The Bible says no. No. See, that that flies against, you know, there's the theology that, well, first of all, everybody's going to end up in heaven one day. Or that, well, if people just start knowing the judgment of God, that's all they'll need to turn to God. And the Bible clearly reminds us and teaches us about the hardness of the human heart. And we see it over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. It's one of the reasons why the Bible says what God is doing is true and right and just. Let me just give you a couple instances of why. First of all, against Israel, the time of Jacob's trouble. The reason why God is judging Israel during this seven-year period is because throughout history as a nation, they rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Now again, many Jews will come to know Christ during the tribulation. But one of the reasons why God is doing this is because they, the people of God, after all the revelation, all the miracles, all the prophets, everything, as a nation, they have rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. That's one of the just reasons. Second, against the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles, obviously, uh, for many reasons, have also not only rejected God and become ungodly and godless, But many Gentiles down through history have hated the Jews, anti-Semitism. And way back with Abraham, God said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And folks, that's still in effect today. There was no time in history where God said, no, no more. No. So all those nations, all those peoples down through the years who have hated the Jews, guess what? God's judgment's coming. Third. God is also showing through the tribulation period the character, nature, plan, and purposes of Satan. And saying to the world, this is who I revealed Satan was was, and what he's all about. And I'm being vindicated because everything that's happening during the tribulation period is exactly what I said. That's exactly who Satan is. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a thief. He's a murderer. And it's all played out during the tribulation period. And then finally, God is vindicating himself. All the promises, all the things that he said throughout his word, through all time, are finally going to be completed in every detail. And God's promises will come to fulfillment. So these are just some of the reasons why the Bible says this is why God is just in what he's doing at this time. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. 
so that darkness covered his kingdom. Notice many of these parallel in a much greater detail the judgments upon Egypt back in the book of Exodus. And people began to bite their tongues because of their pain. It was a pain that could not be alleviated. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their sufferings. The word blaspheme means to speak evil of or slander. Instead of turning to God and saying, God, I'm sorry, I repent, I want, I want to come to you, forgive me of my sin, save me. No, they slander and speak evil of the God of heaven. And because of their sores. And again, the Bible says, verse 11, very importantly, nevertheless, they still refused to repent of their deeds. Again, they fail an opportunity to repent and continue to blaspheme God. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and dried up its water to prepare the way for the kings from the east. The Euphrates River has always been a very strategic river in world history. Then I saw three unclean spirits that looked like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, the unholy trinity. And these three demonic spirits are working with the unholy trinity to bring the nations of the world to a final battle. For they are the spirits of the demons performing signs who go out to the kings of the earth to bring them together for the battle that will take place on the great day of God, the all-powerful. By the way, the word battle there is the Greek word polemon, P-O-L-E-M-O-N. It denotes an extended engagement rather than a single battle. It's not like it's just going to be a battle, boom, it's done. It's going to be an extended engagement. For instance, again, you guys know how I love civil war and stuff. So we call it the Battle of Gettysburg. But if you know the history, you know that the Battle of Gettysburg was actually a three-day campaign and had many, if you will, little battles within it. The battle at the railroad cut, the battle at the wheat field, the peach orchard, peach orchard, little round top, uh, the cops of trees, you name it, Culp's Hill. There were all these little battles taking place in what's called the Battle of Gettysburg. But it was an extended engagement. It lasted for three days. This battle is going to last for many days, if not weeks, that the nations of the earth are converging on. And then in verse 15, some very important information. Jesus is saying, look, I will come like a thief. Literally in the Greek language, Jesus is saying, act as if I'm on my way. I'm on my way, he says. So don't be caught spiritually unprepared. In fact, he says, blessed is the one who stays alert and does not lose his clothes so that he will not have to walk around naked and his shameful condition be seen. What's Jesus saying here? Well, let's take these just real quickly one at a time. First of all, he says that that we are blessed if we stay alert. Now, remember something. He's not talking to us. We're not around. But he is talking, I believe, to believers alive during the tribulation period. But the principles are the same. You and I need to stay alert today. As well. And what's it mean to stay alert? It means to maintain fellowship with the Lord and maintain our spiritual priorities. That's how you and I stay alert. That's how we stay awake. 
It's not about just having a relationship with God. It's about maintaining close fellowship with God. It's about walking with God hand in hand, step by step, every day, and maintaining our priorities. So often as Christians, we get our priorities out of whack. And so God is saying, make sure you keep your priorities what they need to be. That's how we stay awake. Secondly, he says, don't lose your clothes. See, clothes were the outward practical evidence of who we're supposed to be on the inside. Obviously, no one can see, you know, the Holy Spirit within a Christian. But you and I can, in a sense, put on Jesus Christ and put on the new man, as the New Testament talks about. And we can wear our Christianity, if you will, on the outside. The, the reality of who we are on the inside can come out. That's why Paul says, work out your salvation to the Philippians. Let what's on the inside come out. And he's talking there then about making sure that we also practically evidence who we are out to others. So that we will not have to walk around naked. That phrase is talking about the empty profession. I'm supposed to look like this. If I'm just talking the talk and not walking the walk, it's empty profession. Jesus says that's, that's like being naked. Titus 1.16, Paul writes to Titus, they profess that they know God, but in their deeds they deny Him. In a sense, Jesus is saying, don't be like that. If you profess to know me, then live it. This is no time for sloppy complacency in our walk with God, both now and during the tribulation period. So that, notice, so that we won't walk around naked and our shameful condition be seen by others. The word shameful there means unpresentable, indecent. We should live in such a way that we present, in a sense, an attractiveness to our faith and an attractiveness to our Savior. And he's saying, don't, don't walk out being indecent, just like we would never, hopefully, want to walk out without being properly dressed so that others can see us. In a sense, Jesus is saying, don't walk out one day out of your house without being properly, spiritually dressed and prepared. So that when other people begin to observe your life, it's not like, ooh, you know, sorry I saw that. Verse 16, now the spirits, these demonic spirits that were referred to in verse 14, gathered the kings and their armies to the place that is called Armageddon in the Hebrew. This is referring to the hill country surrounding the plain of Megiddo. By the way, the word Megiddo means place of troops, interestingly. It is a staging area for vast armies. In fact, when Napoleon visited this area of Palestine, he even said that this would be a place where the armies of the world could gather for a battle. And there have been over 200 wars down through history fought on the plains of Megiddo. We're going to talk more about the, specific, the specifics of this in the coming weeks on Tuesday night. But so far, that's just what he wants us to know. Verse 17. Finally, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? Last three words, it is finished. Same, same Greek. Then there were flashes of lightning, roaring and crashes of thunder, and there was a tremendous earthquake. Now, there's been other earthquakes in Revelation, but this earthquake, he says, is unequaled since humanity has been on the earth. So tremendous was the earthquake. 
that the great city, I believe their reference to Jerusalem, was even split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. So Babylon the Great was remembered before God and was given the cup filled with the wine made of God's furious wrath. Every island fled away. No mountains could be found. Then gigantic hailstones weighing about a hundred pounds each fell from heaven on people. But they blasphemed God because of the plague of hail since it was so horrendous. A couple things, and then we're going to turn to one passage and close in prayer. Notice that everything man has built for his glory one day will crumble and collapse. Every monument, every, everything to the glory of man is one day going to crumble and collapse. The only thing that is not going to crumble is man's heart. Man's heart will continue to remain hardened against God up until the very end. Amazingly, the Bible predicts they will not repent. They will still go on blaspheming the God of heaven. With these words, would you please turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. I want to leave you with some practical stuff for us tonight from this passage. Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning in verse 25. The author in this passage gives you and I as Christians today three, three things to make sure that we prioritize. The first one, verse 25 of Hebrews 12. Take care. Not to refuse the one who is speaking. In other words, basically, don't blow God off when He's talking to you. How much care do we take when God is speaking to us? And the author here is saying, make sure that you take care not to refuse the one who's speaking. In fact, very interestingly, the word refuse there, the only other time that word in the Greek language is used in the New Testament, it's used in the passages where Jesus is giving uh, illustrations about God sending out invitations to weddings and banquets, and people come up with all these lame excuses about why they can't attend. They refuse. Same word. For if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less shall we if we reject the one who warns from heaven? Then his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, I will once more shake not only the earth, but heaven too. I think he was doing that in many ways, but especially there in the book of Revelation chapter 16. Now this phrase once more indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is of created things, so that what is unshaken may remain. You see, one day, everything that is created is going to crumble and collapse. Only that which is not created is going to last. It reminds you and I as Christians that we need to live our lives laying up treasure in heaven, not here on the earth, and not getting so caught up in the material world. Not that it's wrong to have material things, but that material things and all of that should never have us. Our center of our lives should always be God. Verse 28. So since we are receiving, and this is really cool, we are, folks, receiving an unshakable kingdom. 
No matter how much shaking is going to go on in the earth and all the stuff that's going to crumble, God has a place for us that will not shake. It's eternal. You and I have an eternal place with God. So because of that, here comes the second thing that should be a priority. Not only take care not to refuse when he speaks, verse 25, but let us give thanks. Literally, let's always be grateful and appreciative for who God is and for what we have in God. As we talked about Sunday, for the wealth and riches and resources that we have because we are sons and daughters of God. Again, going back to the children of Israel, it wasn't good enough that God gave them manna. No, they had to complain. They had to murmur, God, manna again. God could have left them starved. He could have very easily given them nothing to sustain them. At least he gave them manna. And man, when I reminded myself of that, I think, Jeff, how often do I not appreciate what I have and complain about what I don't have? I'm no different than the Israelites. I need to be thankful and appreciative for, for what God has done. And then the third thing, and through this, don't miss that. Through what? Through a thankful heart. Through an appreciative, uh, grateful heart. Let us offer worship, pleasing to God in devotion and all. Literally, the word worship there is worshipful service. It described the priestly service of the priests in the Old Testament. And don't forget, the Bible says that now we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We are also priests and we are to render worshipful service to God in devotion and awe. For our God is indeed a devouring fire. He's going to consume everything that is against him one day. Everything. And, and even in our lives today as Christians, part of, part of his of our spiritual growth and maturity and even part of the discipline of God in our lives is He will come in every once in a while and consume the things that should not be there and take them away. You know the song that we sing? He gives, He takes away. That, that song doesn't mean God's an Indian giver like He gives us something good and then takes it back. What the song is reminding us of is that God gives and when He takes away, it means He's consuming something that shouldn't be. He's dissolving something that should not be because if we're putting anything or anyone in place of Him, He's eventually going to consume it. And if we're worshiping this thing over here rather than Him, eventually it's going to fall through our fingers and we're not going to have it anymore because He's going to consume it. Because part of making us like Jesus Christ is to consume in our lives everything that is against His nature. He's a consuming, devouring fire. And we have seen in the book of Revelation that one day that's exactly what He's going to do on the earth. Folks, let us leave here thankful that because we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we have an unshakable kingdom. And because of that, let's take care not to refuse Him when He's speaking to us. Let's give thanks continually and let's offer worshipful service to Him in devotion and all. Let's pray. God, thank You for bringing us out on Tuesday night to study Your Word, to be together, to sing Your praises. And God, may You continue to just build a solid, 
solid, strong group of Christians here at the Oasis. Lord, help us to continue to grow and mature and learn and, and serve and worship and just have You stretch us, Lord, and use us. Help us to be a light in the darkness. Help us to be living in such a way that we will draw people to Christ, not repel them. Help us to live in such a way that we can be an encouragement and a refreshment to our brothers and sisters in Christ, not a drain on their life spiritually. God, help us to be what our name is. Help us to be a spiritual oasis in this world today. God, go with us. Take us all home safely, especially, Lord, through the storms tonight. And Lord, we look forward to gathering us again together on Sunday. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here. Have a great rest of the week.